Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner, and welcome to the Mark Steiner Show. And of course, it's Tuesday. Welcome to Sound Bites, our weekly look at food, agriculture, and our environment. Uh, produced right here at WEAA in Baltimore, at WEA 80.9 FM, the voice of the community, and also broadcast on Marvel Public Radio on WSTL 90.7 FM. And we begin our program today to talk about uh, a report that came out on the state of diversity in environmental organizations that was written by Dr. Darcetta Taylor. Uh, and Whitney Perkin from um, a blogger at uh, thinkabouteat.com uh, wrote a piece about this as well. So we're going to wrestle with this question of why there are um, uh, why, the, why there are so few African Americans, at least seemingly in the in the environmental movement, but in the leadership of the movement and uh, as part of the environmental struggle in this country. That's how it visually seems, and by some of the research done uh, by uh, Dorsita. Um, Taylor, it seems to be that way. So we're joined here by Dr. Dorsita Taylor, who is Professor, Environmental Justice Field of Studies Coordinator, past chair of Environment and Technology Section of the American Sociological Association at the University of Michigan, and author of the report we're discussing, uh, and also Toxic Communities, Environmental Racism, Industrial Pollution, and Residential Mobility. And Dr. Taylor, great to have you with us. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I hope you're having a wonderful day. I am having a good day. We started off our program today talking about John Coltrane and Love Supreme. What could be so bad? <laughs> <laughs> we, are, we are also here with Whitney Pitkin, who is writer on food, agriculture, and environment for the Bay Journal and a fellow at the Institute of Journalists of Natural Resources and a blogger at thinkabouteat.com. Uh, and good to have you with us, Whitney. Welcome. Hi, thank you. And Jackie Patterson is joining us. Uh, she is uh, calling us from a conference in Peru, but she is dec- director of the NAACP Climate Justice Initiative. Jackie, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thank you. Always good to Always great to have you with us. I know you couldn't drive across town today. It'd be a little bit of a long trip. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> and Fred Tutman is in the studio. Fred Tutman is a Patuxent water ke- river keeper. And uh, welcome to the studio, Fred. Good to have you here. Great. And one of the things I said to Fred, well, you're... The only African American waterkeeper in Maryland said, "No, I'm the only African American waterkeeper in the United States." So that says <laughs> volumes about part of what we're talking about here. And you all can join us at four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty eight. Write to us here at talk at steinershow dot org. Log on to our Facebook pages. Tweet me at Mark Steiner four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty eight. And, and uh, Dr. Dorsita uh, Taylor, um, let me start with you and just talk about. Let's describe this report because you looked at the United States government. Um, agencies, NGOs, foundations, to see the, the breadth or in lack of depth in some ways of interns and people working there and leadership, correct? Yes. yes. So it was a national study, and I sought to, uh, to do a comprehensive uh, set of analysis that could give us a sense across a number of types of organizations of how much diversity there was and whether or not it's what it was improving over time. And so if we look back at the 1990s, we do see some improvement. But if we look at where we are uh, today, then uh, one would really expect to see a greater trajectory of having more people of color in these organizations and not just uh, being hired, but as you move up the occupational ranks, to see more in leadership in these organizations. And we're just not seeing those numbers uh, showing up. So it really is cause for concern. Now, if, if I, if, and you can please correct me if I misread or misinterpreted some of the data and some of the, what you described in this report, but uh, it, it seemed to be saying at least in some of the, um, what the, what the organizations themselves had to say, is that, yes, by a large margin, they were, they were concerned on many levels about the issue of diversity um, and bringing more people of color in. But in terms of, the, of, of what to do, it wasn't a priority item on their agendas. Is that fair to say? Uh, or if it is a priority, they're going about it, in many cases, uh, the wrong way. So they have been saying for a long time, even when I was a student back in the 90s, all these organizations would say, yes, we're concerned. We want to see more uh, students of color going through environmental programs, and we want to be able to find them and hire them. That's always been the mantra. However, when you do look at the data, 
they aren't hiring the students. They, uh, they are making hires because virtually over 90% of the organizations I survey said, yes, we've hired someone in the last three years. When you ask who have you hired, they're not hiring people of color. Uh, so they're not doing what they are saying they want to do. Uh, they also are not recruiting very well. So, for instance, there are many conferences that go on each year. For instance, a conference uh, run by Manners, Minorities in Agriculture and Natural Resources. If you go to that conference, you'll find about 400 or so of the brightest African-American students who are doing their degrees in the fields of agriculture and natural resources and environment. You'll not find any environmental organization there recruiting. If you go to SACNAS, uh, if you go to NHEC, these are Hispanic conferences, similar conferences, you will not find the environmental organizations there. If you go to the Native American equivalent, you just don't see them there. Who do you see there? You see Cargill, you see Monsanto, you see Weyerhaeuser, so the, the big corporate organizations that do environment uh, as part of their portfolio, they know how to go and recruit and find talent. Uh, the big enviros don't put any budgetary line items uh, in their budget to do recruiting, to do uh, to hire diversity managers, to do staff development, to do training, and so they're just not putting the money in the places that it needs to go so that they can attract, recruit, and retain. Uh, minority talent, and I, I think this is. Which you, there, there's so many pieces to parse out here, but what, let me just pick up on what you just said, uh, Dorsita, which is that, that um, where where the environmental groups do not go um, in terms of these conferences and going out there. And this is not the first time we have kind of studied and looked at uh, on this program um, the, the this this gap here, where the the groups that most environmental groups lobby and fight against for a clean environment and environmental justice and environmental issues are the very groups that go to the black environmental organizations and the, and the Congressional Black Caucus and lobby there hard mm-hmm. uh, to, 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 to recruit people. And th- this, is, this is, I mean, I, it's just glaring on, on, on so many levels. Um, and let, let me go around the room and get your thoughts on this. And let, let, me, let, let me start, let me go to Jackie, who's joining us from Peru, and, then, and go to Fretup, and then go over to Whitney. Jackie? Sure. Um, yeah, so... I think that I am seeing a lot of the... Can you hear me okay? I hear yes, we can hear you. So yeah, we can hear you. Okay, good. So Dr., a lot of what Dr. Taylor has, has said is uh, as uh, issues around the systemic not uh, um, lack of emphasis on bringing on folks. I see it on the other side in terms of how that plays out in terms of the environment of, not, um, no pun intended, of the uh, various organizations and in terms of the organizing that we see and also the very results that you talk about with regard to to folks trying to get folks on board in terms of their issues. So whether it's the rooms that I go into, like recently I was at a conference on organizing in the southeast, which is where the highest concentration of, of um, African Americans are, around coal plants, and again, those coal plants are disproportionately located in communities of color, and I'm at this conference of maybe 50 people um, that was a strategy session on organizing, and I'm the only African-American person in the room. And so, and it's not an uncommon situation of being the only African-American person or the only person of color in rooms where strategies are being built and so forth. So, and then on the other side, when I, when engaging with um, right now we're trying to deal with issues around distributed generation of solar, and we've seen where these different um, coal right. companies and right. oil and gas companies and so forth have built long-term relationships with these groups, and then the big greens come in just at the very moment that they need help on something, and they don't have the relationship, they don't really understand the culture and so forth, and so there's no real, there's not no fertile ground upon which to even hear the arguments that they're giving on the other side. I could go on and on, but I'll no, That's okay. <laughs> uh, go ahead. Well, I think we're actually overthinking this. What do you mean? A lot of these environmental organizations are very unappealing places for people of color to work. They're not just environmental organizations. They're social organizations, too, and the internal cultures of these places requires that you check your diversity at the door. 
What they want is to recruit people of color who think and act and have the same values as white environmentalists. And that's very tough. I mean, speaking as someone who works in a predominantly white environmental community, I'm seen as impertinent if I share ideas or views or values that are not consistent with my white counterparts. So the way to get diversity is not to hire it, right? It's magnetic. Diversity is magnetic if you're doing work that serves communities of color, if you're doing work that substantially benefits the constituency that you want to attract. Some of those corporations you mentioned are financiers of some of the largest environmental organizations that, uh, on the planet. And, you know, they, they, these groups uh, work on behalf of their donors and their supporters, and sometimes those interests are adverse to communities of color. So it's very unappealing to work in an environmental organization where you're assured to be doing work that doesn't benefit the general society, but is self-serving for those organizations that have a common worldview, a common social framework. Um, I mean, that's just my take on it, is that they're unappealing. But why would I want to work in a place that doesn't work on the problems of communities of color, that doesn't care? You don't get diversity unless you do EJ, environmental justice. They go together. You can't have one without the other. So, you know, Kate, uh, Whitney Pipkin, um, sure. um, I'm, I'm, you, you cover this in the state of Maryland, especially in the, in the Chesapeake Bay watershed. And, and, I, and so I'm curious, when you first saw this report and you, and you witnessed what goes on in the mostly white world of environmental movement in this, in this Chesapeake Bay watershed, um, do these conversations ever take place? Yeah, I mean, we've been having them on our staff at the Chesapeake Bay Journal, and um, I think it's funny when I started making calls about this report to get reactions, everyone said, well, yeah, we already knew that. Um, and they, they had stories like what was said about being the only person of color in a in a conference room setting. And so that, that is something that we see throughout our watershed. It's particularly um, acute here in the Chesapeake Bay watershed because we do have diversity in some of the urban areas that are struggling with water quality, like Baltimore, D.C., um, Virginia Beach, and that diversity is not being represented on the large in the larger organizations. We are beginning to see um, some of the smaller grassroots organizations go uh, approach these environmental issues from the community level, and that's being successful in the Anacostia watershed. Um, for example, you have Dennis Chestnut with Groundwork Anacostia, who's really engaging the local communities. In Prince George's County, Maryland, you have um, a I have a story in the next issue about their program to engage churches in stormwater retention um, projects. And so there's some, some creative methods kind of bubbling up from the ground level, um, but there is often a disconnect in these communities. They don't really connect to the health of a crab out in the Chesapeake Bay. The issues where they're being engaged um, successfully are flooding in their neighborhoods, water quality, the health of fish that they're fishing and, and sharing with their families out of the rivers. Go ahead, Fred. So here's the irony, right? The grassroots organizations that you're describing, Whitney, are in fact already integrated. They're already diverse. Grassroots groups aren't doing the same mm -hmm. work that big, massive environmental organizations are doing. So the irony is that these big environmental organizations are trying to preach to the grassroots about diversity when the diversity is already there. It's already in right. the grassroots. So the problem is internal, right? It's internal in these environmental movements. It's not because the job postings aren't being put in all the right places, right? The problem is that they are very well, very poorly poised for diversity, not ready for it. They're not eager to embrace it. Well, and that's yeah. the, what you just said. You just said not eager to embrace it. And, and Dr. Rossetto-Taylor, I mean, I think that, you know, with all that we're addressing here in the United States right now around issues of race that are just exploding, which and, and rightly so exploding in and kind of in this, in this kind of after the 1960s, we're now seeing the 20, the, the 2010s and 14s exploding on the scene and wrestling these questions. But when it, it's not even in their framework, where do we go from this? I mean, I think you can only have. I saw a part of the report where people are having diversity workshops, but diversity workshops only go so far. It has to do with what is in the internal life of that organization and how it defines itself. I think what Fred is pointing out and what Dr. Taylor um, teases out in her report is that the issue is really money. Um, so the bigger environmental organizations have larger pots of money. And so even if the grassroots um, groups are good at mobilizing volunteers to do trash cleanups, um, you're not going to see the giant shifts that, that are needed um, in an environmental justice respect without the bigger organizations prioritizing these things financially. 
Well, big money, okay, doesn't seek social and economic change, right? Big money that finances these big organizations, they would lose that money if they were working on the empowerment of local communities of color, right? So they keep those issues very separate. They just want the trash picked up. They don't want to change the whole social economic scene. They don't want to change the leadership. That's revolutionary. These big groups don't do revolutionary work. They do anti-pollution work. It's different. Dorsetta Taylor, jump in before we go to Jackie Patterson. I mean, just yes. Uh, it, uh, they, they, it's certainly really about the internal structure. And these internal structures, as I've said to people for a long time, they have taken 150 years to build them. Because many of these organizations that we're talking about date back to the uh, 1880s, 1890s. So they've had quite a lot of time. To, uh, to put these structures in place and to protect these structures within their leadership. So it is not surprising that they do not want those transformational kinds of questions and those voices in the organizations. The reality of it, though, is uh, people of color are, we're at a point where we cannot afford to say we are not going to do environment. Because if you look at most of the environmental disasters, hazards, they disproportionately affect. Uh, and black communities mm-hmm. more than any other communities. That's part of what I chronicle in, uh, in toxic communities, just how insidious uh, the impacts are on us. So we can't necessarily walk away and say we're not going to uh, engage these communities. The, the challenge for us is to how we're going to do it and be in charge of that discourse to, uh, to get, to take, to, um, to be a part of that leadership discussion. Uh, mm-hmm. Someone mentioned earlier about the stakeholder processes where you go into these rooms and you're the only black person or the only person of color. Uh, that's going to probably shift the needle very little or not at all. We need the millennial generation of of, um, of students of color coming up behind us. And it really is a different generation. If you look at um, kids in their teens and early 20s, you will, you know, you'll find black kids doing amazing environmental work that their parents and their grandparents weren't involved in because they, they understand how critical it is for them to get engaged in things like climate adaptation. There are young black kids running around Detroit, you know, setting up climate adaptation plans in their communities. Uh, You wouldn't have seen that a decade ago because those kids understand how critical it is to to be engaged on community environmental issues. Uh, So we we do have quite a bit of a big challenge, both from the people of color end in terms of understanding where the discourses are going and how shifts are going and how to be more critical players on environmental justice but on a broader range of issues now you're seeing it all you're seeing it here out of out of maryland as well around the incinerator issue on the east side of baltimore where young people are Mm -hmm. taking the lead actually opposing their parents in fighting this incinerator be built and building a whole movement around what happens to our trash and to communities and that maybe is where the energy will come from. And, Jackie, if that – so I'm curious what we all think about where this future might go. I mean, where, where is this going to take us? Because you, 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 if, there's gonna be, if there's a major disconnect between um, white and communities of color in, in this environmental movement, from national groups to, to local groups, if there is this kind of wedge going in in many ways with some of the, the – uh, the biggest polluters in the in the country and uh, biggest uh, environmental businesses have caused so much of the environmental problem are, are funding a lot of these groups as well as being a, a major stakeholder and where most groups of color meet, uh, including the Black Congressional Caucus. Then uh, this is this is a situation that is very volatile. It seems, volatile, it seems to me, Jackie. Yes. Yeah. So I do want to bring a little. Well, I want to second what was just said in terms of the, go ahead, the, go ahead. the youth and the hope we find there. And then secondly, I want to just bring a little bit of hope in terms of an initiative that, um, that I'm a part of and that others are engaged in called the Building Equity and Alignment Initiative. And it's actually a very intentional process that brings together um, foundations, grassroots, uh, frontline community groups, and big greens to actually talk about it. And we have, there's a structure around shifting hearts, shifting minds, and shifting cultures of practice. 
and the whole aim is to actually shift resources to frontline um, grassroots groups and to really, and to at the same time, talk about the principles of organizing together with um, with big green organizations and what it really means to actually centralize the principles and practices of frontline groups who should be leading in this struggle and really also having a conversation directly with philanthropy about how they're to some extent responsible for the dynamic that's evolved in terms of this being uh, the, white, the, the white-led environmental um, uh, uh, space of environmentalism and really um, shifting how we're, how we're thinking about it and how we're actually doing it. So it's been an exciting, it's been going for about a year now and is moving forward in terms of, um, in terms of really having some deep conversations and with leadership of these different entities about how, about their responsibility and how we can actually make this shift. So let's bring that up. And it actually was spearheaded by the Overbrook Foundation, interestingly enough, because they saw what was happening. Some of the other foundations who are involved include some of the bigger foundations like Crespi and um, Hewlett, as well as some others. And then um, Greenpeace is involved in roles with the club. Um, NRDC is there, and a number of um, grassroots online community groups. Well, I think we're all on the same page, maybe just different parts of the same page. I think we're talking about two different things, really, here. One is diversity, which is the who. Who's doing the work? And that's an easy problem to solve. Let's just go out and hire some people of color. Big deal. But we haven't solved the what. EJ is the what. Environmental justice is what these groups are working on in substance that provides benefit to the communities they serve. They don't serve black communities, brown communities. They don't. There's no incentive for them to do so because they believe because the monetary resources flow right, from large corporate interests in some cases or moneyed interests that, again, don't have a social agenda beyond picking up the trash and cleaning up the planet well, in the general sense. Can I ask you for to define what you're saying a bit more so we can yeah. wrestle with this? What, you're sure. saying, what, what, are these, what are these two different agendas you're talking about exactly? Yeah. You use the word anti-pollution, but what, mm-hmm. what specifically are you talking mm-hmm. about? Talking about diversity on one side of the plank, which is uh, who, what is the makeup of the workforce? Okay. On the other end of the spectrum is what the workforce is working on. If the workforce in the environmental community is working on where the worst problems are, I assure you they would be working on environmental justice problems because <laughs> national studies show that's where the worst problems are. Right? But they're not doing that, least of all in the Bay Movement, right? which largely is about preserving beautiful right. areas, saving crabs and oysters, but rarely picks up uh, a problem for a, you know, a, a subjugated community, a disenfranchised community. And I believe if they did, or let me flip it the other way, if, if you diversified the leadership of these organizations, does anybody doubt they'd be doing different priorities? They'd be working on very different problems. And that creates resentment within a predominantly white community that's okay with the agenda. They just want more black and brown people on their page, on their bandwagon. All right, so let me, let me take that for what this is, and let me just pick one very specific thing. Maybe think of this. Maybe it's not related. You will say, oh, no, that's not what I mean, but maybe mm-hmm. let me throw it out there for the four of you to talk about. In the state of Maryland, where we broadcast from, mm-hmm. there is an argument going on around this thing called the phosphorus management tool, mm-hmm. which has to do with runoff from our farms into the bay and destroying the water and having farmers be, to, to, to manage the amount of phosphorus. And so you can judge the levels that are on there to say, yes, you can put this on your land. No, you can't put this on your land. And farmers and uproar are saying no. And environmentalists are pushing and saying yes. Chesapeake Bay Foundation and the rest. Um, and so when you see those hearings take place and you see these conversations take place around those issues, those are almost entirely made up of people who are white on one side or the other. So... I want to talk about, I mean, because that's one of the motivating factors in this area. And it's, yes, it has to do with the oysters, has to do with the crabs, has to do with the state of the bay and our water, but it also has to do with the state of people's lives, right? So we have to take a break here, is that what we're doing? So I, yeah, well, the, who's, the programming, the bay program's priorities are oriented around nitrogen and phosphorus and sediment. So that's that's the, you know, the symptom that you're seeing there is that, it's just a matter of measuring how you can move that needle in the largest way, which is how you get phosphorus tools and farmers versus the Bay kind of issues. Um, whereas the, the, the needle that Fred's talking about moving is, is a diversity one, and there's, there's just a disconnect. I don't know where the connection is. Um, I mean, we, at the Chesapeake Bay watershed has, has long been about the fish and the crabs and the oysters and reviving them, and um, it's just beginning to sort of wake up to the um, 
impacts in the in the local communities. So we have to take a very brief break. We're going to come right back. I want to pick up on that point and talk about the community. This is like a concrete example. Um, um, and uh, that we can talk about that is emanating from where this program is being broadcast from um, that I think we can figure out. So, so what would that mean to create a diversity around these issues? Is it possible? And what issues are missing in this that creates the diversity? We'll be right back. Stay with us as we look at the lack of diversity in our environmental movements. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites and inspired by the State of Diversity Environmental Organizations Report uh, written by Dr. Dorsita Taylor from the University of Michigan uh, and also written about by Whitney Pipkin uh, in the Bay Journal. We're here with both of them and Fred Tutman, who is the Patuxent Waterkeeper, and Jackie, Jacqueline Patterson, who's director of the NAACP Climate Justice Initiative. And you all at 410-319-8888. If you're an environmental activist listening to this program, if you're not, join us. How do you think this can be dealt with? Uh, or you can write to us at talkatsteinershow.org. Tweet me at Mark Steiner, 410-319-8888. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas on this. But So what I posited at the end, so if, this, if we take it from the perspective of where we are, where this show is being broadcast from, um, how, and you're talking about the, the, the runoff from the farms that are polluting the bay and all the other runoff from people's homes and the rain tax and all the other madness people are debating. How does that, how does that then become a, a how, does that, how does that change? How does both the message change and the heart of the fundamental of what the movement is about change? Well, I think you'd have a fight on your hands if you tried to change the messaging of the Bay Movement in particular. The Bay Movement is a nature-loving movement, first and foremost. And for many people who are connected to it, their whole perspective is that the Bay is the center of the ecosystem that they care about. So they only care about smart growth in so much as it affects the Bay. Pesticides in so much as it affects the Bay. Anything is only in so much as it affects and drains to the Chesapeake Bay, which does not resonate to people who don't have that same kind of connection to the Bay, doesn't deal with toxics, doesn't deal with food deserts, doesn't deal with any number of things, any gathering of African-American environmentalists that I've ever been to, the bandwidth for talking about the environment as a connect, interconnected ecosystem is far broader than the Bay Movement, which is a regional movement that follows a particular leadership and a particular tra- set of traditions and a particular set of funders. So in that sense, you know, you use the phosphorus management tool. Well, yeah, it's a huge ecosystem issue, but it's not one that resonates particularly well in communities that are uh, hardest hit by toxic hazards from the environment. Right? It's not a public health movement. Right? It's a save, again, the save the crab, these, uh, crabs, the oysters, the turtles, the living resources of the bay. It distinguishes itself, again, from social justice, which is completely enmeshed with virtually any environmental problem you're likely to find in a community of color, period. End of story. And, and Dorsita, in some ways, even though you're, not, you're, you're based in Michigan, not here, but you have a national view of this, this is what your new book is about in some ways. Yes. Uh, the Toxic Communities book really shows the extent to which all of these issues are very interconnected in which, you know, the social, the economic, the political. It also talks about how African-American leaders from the 1960s was really pushing to link these issues together and was ignored in a way by the predominantly white uh, environmental movement, but also in communities of color. And since we are talking about the Bay, my book coming out next year with Duke University, which is called Power, Privilege, and the Rise of the Conservation Movement, one of the things I do in that book is to really show how even us as black people, we don't, we don't promote our contributions to the environment very much. So if we look at Harriet Tubman, for instance, who was a slave born and raised in the Bay, 
um, she's often portrayed in most environment in black literature as, you know, the conductor in the Underground Railroad. I often say to my students, if you were Harriet Tubman and you had to be a runaway slave, you had to understand ecology and you had to exploit it hmm. to accomplish what she did. And she was by far, in my mind, and in my book, I frame her as one of the leading environmentalists of the 19th century. Wow. If you look at what she had to do, how much knowledge she had to have, how, um, how she, she learned from the system, utilized it, turned it on, on its head to, to free over 300 slaves. So part of what we also have to do as black thinkers, intellectuals, and activists is to make these communities relevant to kids. Because the same black students are ready to walk out my classes when I start talking about environment. <laughs> the minute I start in on Harriet Tubman, I start uh, to talk about York, the slave that Lewis and Clark, without Sacagawea and York, could not have made it across the country. And, uh, and the number of black explorers that went to the West, opened up uh, cities like Los Angeles. Uh, half of the people who founded Los Angeles were African Americans. Uh, we once owned Hollywood. <laughs> so we need to bring those kinds of histories, because white kids are, are um, embedded in the environmental movement because they see their history reflected in it. We have not done that yet for African Americans and their contributions to the environmental movement. Uh, at one point, uh, the U.S. Army in 1865, they used Harriet Tubman as a minesweeper because she understood the ecology of the Chesapeake Bay so well that she could detect any mines that hmm. the Southern uh, Army had laid down. That I never heard before. That's not interesting. Wow. Ship, not a single ship got blown up. Uh, as she as she was able to uh, to bring them into the mines, because as a slave, she grew up uh, in those wetlands, uh, collecting uh, muskrats, collecting uh, edible foods and and weeds and that sort of stuff. We need to bring that, just like we're doing with urban agriculture, to have black kids understand the idea of food sovereignty, food control, and doing this through how you engage food in urban areas. We need to do the same thing, reclaim the bay, reclaim that, uh, that history, the history of whaling. Mm -hmm. At one point, most of the whalers, a lot of them were African-American whalers. Right. And we haven't done very well. So if our kids can connect that and understand what Tubman did in the 1860s and 50s, uh, they will understand that we can now say we don't want pollution in our communities, take on the, the big powers and organize movements to, to, um, to, to heal our communities. Well, I, what you just said is just really profound. So I'm, I'm dying now to, for that book to be published. We can get you back in there and just talk about the book. <laughs> it, should be, it should be out next year because what it does is basically it really gets at this idea that the environment is all about white Europeans coming in and settling it and, and creating stuff from scratch. No, uh, slave owners didn't know how to plant rice. They deliberately went to Africa, chose slaves that had experience and skill in growing rice. The slaves brought the cultivars with them and developed the rice plantations on the Gullah Island. So if we weren't just dumb slaves running around the plantation waiting for somebody to <laughs> give us some work to do. <laughs> you know, and if we think about it, British noblemen, what do they know about growing rice and cotton and this stuff? Yeah. No, they don't. So Jack, you we have to do we have to re turn it on its head for our kids to understand their legacy and and to say, Yeah, we got this, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. Jackie, you were trying to say what? Is that you? Oh, and Mark, we have a story in the next issue about that would be along these lines Whitney, interesting sorry. that my colleague wrote. Yeah, this is Whitney. Um, about the community of Highland Beach south of Annapolis. Um and there's a, a black mayor there that's turning around um, the town and making it a paragon of great infrastructure. And this is in the place where Frederick Douglass built his summer house right. that he never quite got to live in. But um, And then in Annapolis, you have a black maritime museum. So there are these, these threads throughout um, the watershed. And some of the um, environmental justice movements, there's now a, a coalition operating in the DMV area, um, largely thanks to Dr. Sakobi Wilson of the University of Maryland, they've been putting together. There was a conference this past weekend 
um, of the EJ movement in the Chesapeake watershed, and they're they're beginning to weave those things together. But it's sort of coming from uh, two different directions, um, like Fred talked about, and it'll be interesting to see how how folks like him and uh, some of the people working on the ground can can make the Chesapeake Bay an issue that resonates with more diverse communities. So I'm curious. Let me turn to to Fred and to Jackie here and just talk about as as the two of you who are your daily lives are be, are active in the environmental movement. That's what you do for a living, the both of you, right? So, so how how does this how do we take this? We don't have much time to do this in this in this segment, but we can continue this conversation in many ways over the coming weeks and months. But how do we be, so how does that transformation begin to take place? Do you think, Fred? I actually think first of all, that we have to, again, completely ping at reorienting the focus of the regional movement. In my case, that's the Bay Movement, which largely resents these views. I've been, I've been saying this stuff for 30 years. Nobody really wants to hear it. And in fact, I even had folks tell me that it's disingenuous. And there was some guy said to me, we let you in here. We now, let you in here. Yes. Mm-hmm. And yet, you, now you have the nerve to <laughs> criticize. And all I'm really saying, Lord first of all, mercy. is that I serve all citizens in my watershed, all communities. I don't care what color they are. But I recognize that people have very different circumstances and different lenses based, as uh, the the author just said, on their cultural experiences. That is diversity, and diversity is beautiful. Diversity makes a more powerful movement, not a divided movement, not a weaker movement. So how are you going to save biodiversity in nature if you have a very non-diverse movement? It's shocking. It's a bizarre concept. Everyone tells me in the Bay Movement that we all want the same things. You know, because we all rely on air, water, and clear land and all that stuff. The truth is we don't all need the same things because of the circumstances we live in and the society we live in. Race matters. And the way we deal with this is we discuss it and we try to solve problems jointly. We don't pretend that everybody's the same because they're not. Right. The, the mere fact that we're talking about trying to get diversity means obviously we're not the same. Right. Right? <laughs> so that's how we do this is we hit these problems square on the head and we go after them and we try and solve them not just kind of mince around them and say, well, let's just, you know, change the makeup of the workforce and maybe it'll happen naturally. Yeah, it will in a thousand years, maybe, (laughs) just maybe. That's not the way to get this done. And, and Jackie, we don't have a thousand years. Pardon? And and we don't have a thousand years. Yeah, we don't have a thousand (laughs) years. That's very true. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, first, I agree with all that that has already been said. And I would, and uh, one of the things that we um, have been doing has been really helping to contextualize some of these environmental issues within what we're with our kind of bedrock civil rights issues and help and, and also with that helping environmental organizations to be able to see the linkages between our bedrock civil rights issues and the environmental issues that they're working on so that they don't so that they, they're not seeing environmental issues through such a narrow lens and that we and our constituencies aren't looking at environmental issues as being the separate thing from what we deal with every day. So as an example, um, we've been able to forge partnerships with, with the Sierra Club, and they've, they leaned in on the um, Ferguson situation and you know really put out a mailing to all of their membership to join the Ferguson march and rally that we were doing in Missouri and really were through shared conversations and analysis, we were able to really talk about hmm. the contextualizing the faith, the place-based inequalities in the political systems and how they how they they lead to these 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 um, disparities, whether it's in racial profiling and police brutality or whether it's in where toxic facilities are placed. So we really have these great intersectional conversations that that benefit both sides and helping to understand the systemic. Um, underpinnings of all of these different social justice issues, including environmental justice. So that's something that we're working on, and that has been really successful in moving both sides to really start to see this broader, um, broader and deeper analysis and, and need for action. Now, I, I, this is a kind of, to me, um, critically important what we're covering today, and I, and I think that this, this for us is just the tip of the iceberg of exploring this very important subject and pushing it. Um, and I think that we are in a unique position here uh, in the Chesapeake Bay watershed area to really be, have, work to have an effect here on sound bites and the work we're doing uh, to, to change that dynamic. And I think that the envelope has just barely been pushed on the show. Uh, and uh, I, I, we're going to look forward to pushing this across the room 
uh, and, and, and forcing a conversation around the state with our environmental partners uh, and making this a conversation that is, the, that is at the heart of our continuing struggle. Now, first of all, I want to thank, I'm, I'm really happy that we found Dr. Dorsita Taylor uh, and uh, her work. I'm looking forward to Toxic Communities, a new book coming out, and this report we're going to be linking to the state of diversity in environmental organizations. Uh, Dr. Dorsita Taylor, thank you so much for joining us, and I look forward to our continuing conversation. Thank you. It was a pleasure joining you and all the other guests. Great to have you here. And Whitney Papian, thanks for putting this out in the Chesapeake Bay Journal, I mean the Bay Journal, uh, and, and uh, your keen interest in making this part of our conversation. Look forward to working with you again in the, in the coming weeks and months. Great. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Whitney Pipkin. And, uh, and I want to thank Jackie Patterson for taking her time out at this conference. And Peru, she was in to join us by phone, uh, director of the NAAC Climate, Change, Climate Justice Initiative. Jackie, look forward to seeing you back in Baltimore. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Take it easy. You too. And Fred Tutman came in here, Patuxent Riverkeeper, uh, who has been writing some amazing things. And I'm finally glad we got him in the studio. And uh, you'll be hearing a lot more from him on the Sound Bites in the future. Fred, thank you so much for being here as well. You bet. So we're going to take a very brief break here on Sound Bites. And when we come back, we're going to look at a new report being put out about agriculture in Maryland uh, and see what its authors are saying it is about and why it's being written. Uh, and this is just a first quick look at that. Uh, and then we'll take that off in the coming months as well. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner here on Soundbites and the Mark Steiner Show. And we are about to have a conversation about a new report, the American Agricultural Community Legal Concerns, an assessment report that's coming out, they're just beginning actually, uh, and what that means and how in some ways it was on the heels of the lawsuits that was surrounded the University of Maryland and Purdue and the Hudson Farm. Uh, and we are joined here by Paul Geringer. Did I say your last name right, Paul? Uh, close enough, it's Geringer, but... I'm sorry, Paul Geringer. Everyone butchers it, so I just... Well, I got I, it now. I won't do it again. <laughs> Paul Geringer, who is Extension Legal Specialist in the Department of Agriculture and Resource Economics at the College of Agricultural and Natural Resources at the University of Maryland, uh, and co-author of the recent report on top legal concerns for Maryland's agricultural community, and Dr. Stephen Tubin. Do I have that right, Stephen? Yes, yes, you got it right. Good. Associate Professor of Agricultural Economics at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore, co-project director of Outreach for Socially Disadvantaged Farmers and Ranchers Project at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore and coordinator of the Small Farm Institute at UMES as well, also serves as state coordinator for Cooperative State Research Education Extension Service and one of the co-authors of the report. And you all can join us here at 410-319-8888, right to us here at talkstandardshow.org. So, so Stephen, to being, let me start with you. So talk about what this report is. I mean, I when I first heard it, well, I'll tell you my thoughts when I first heard about it before I read it, but let me tell us about what this means and why it was instituted in the first place. Yes, um, thank you for having us um, this morning. Uh, the Agricultural Law uh, Education Initiative, uh, which is uh, uh, a, a project which uh, includes two universities, uh, University of Maryland Eastern Shore, uh, University of Maryland College Park, and uh, Law School, uh, UNP, uh, we put together an interview that uh, was run uh, by... Uh, Ali uh, to agricultural uh, producers uh, group and also uh, to our uh, extension uh, educators uh, at the university, trying to assess uh, the legal needs for our agricultural community uh, here in America. So, and Paul, again, let me get you also in here to talk a bit about um, Geringer about the, the, this report. I'm, I'm, so what is the purpose of the report? The purpose of the report was, as you kind of talked about, the project kind of grew out of the, the Hudson lawsuit as an um, alternative to it to provide legal outreach to farmers. And when we were created by the General Assembly, um, we were given this weedy task, and I can't remember the exact language we were given, but it was a very broad task. We kind of had to focus down 
the main areas that we needed to focus on as to what were the major legal implications or legal issues impacting Maryland agriculture. So we started out, we interviewed some policy and in ag, natural resources, the environment to kind of get a handle on that. And then we looked at it and said, okay, we can't afford to do a survey of all Maryland farmers right now, but we can interact with the groups or the group of people that's most touching their lives right now or most what we would hope they're having the most outreach with, which is University of Maryland Extension in their counties. We kind of reached out to those folks kind of see what the major issues were and to kind of give us some areas that we could focus in on as we began the project and as we move further in our work. So, so I, but I, I kind of want to get to the heart of why. I mean, I know that one of the, I know that one of the political motivations of the report uh, had to do with the reaction to the suit uh, from the University of Maryland of Environmental Law Center and um, with with the Hudsons, the Farming Family, and Purdue, um, and there was kind of an outcry about that. So that's why I'm curious. In, in in the wake of that, with this kind of being put through by the legislature, well, what what I, I trying to get my hands around what it is that you all f- are, are trying to probe and find out and what you, what the end of this could mean? Well, we're probing, I guess what we're probing trying to find out is kind of figuring out what those major issues are that all Maryland farmers are sort of focused in on, what impacts them, and being able to provide educational resources or figure out areas where we can interact with the State Bar Association to hook up farmers with attorneys to be able to help them better in their business planning and other risk management strategies that they would be doing in their ag operations. So it's mainly our end goal is to be able to develop educational outreach through workshops, publications, that type of thing, where we can put them in the hands of farmers, help them understand the issues, and then if they really do need legal help, get them to a member of the bar that can help them with that issue. So, Stephen, Tavine, is is there a sense or a a knowledge or understanding from some sectors that family farms are in trouble because they don't understand the law or what's going on around them? Yes. um, What happens is that farmers, they they are very good uh, producers of um, agricultural commodities. Uh, They are best in what they do. Uh, But things like um, legal issues, uh, they may not be aware of those uh, legal issues. So uh, the initiative comes in to provide at least, um, you know, some educational uh, materials uh, in terms of fact sheets uh, on the issues that, they, you know, they may be facing, uh, like um, uh, right to farm or any uh, environmental issues, land issues, and things like that. So, and then we... By doing the survey, we, we try to find out uh, what are the top issues that uh, the alley uh, can address uh, in helping farmers. So, and one of, one of the issues it seems that uh, that food product safety, but also the question of the environment and our laws surrounding the environment, uh, Paul Geringer, it seemed to be at the, at the top of the list of their concerns. Yes, yes, it did. It seemed, and even when you broke it down to regions, it sort of always stuck out there as one of the top ten issues. And we're trying to focus in to get a more sense of that as to what exactly are the legal concerns in impacting them in the environment as to how we can provide some of those resources. We're trying to figure out ways to gauge from the farm community themselves. So, I mean, so I, I'm just, again, I just want to probe a little deeper because the report was interesting, but I'm curious where you go with the next level of this report. Um, uh, and 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 uh, uh, I mean, what are what what do you really want to see come out of this, Paul? I and mean, what what is and Stephen, what, what 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 as you probe this, what do you see the end result being? I know you can't see the end result until you finish the study, but what do you what are you gearing towards? What are you looking towards? We're looking towards, I guess, a better sense of what the legal issues impacting agriculture are in the state. Cause we're one of the, we're one of the later states to pick up on the idea that extension needs a legal person involved in what's going on. Midwest states have had this for years, where they can kind of sort of develop a sense of what type of educational inputs do we need to better help farmers understand the law, as we would with business or cropping practices or that type of stuff. So I say the major end product is is just being able to focus in as we do that. We hope as we do programming in the coming year to be able to 
sort of survey them on more of what the legal issues are that's, that's impacting them to sort of get a better sense for ourselves what those issues are because we sort of have a broad idea now where to hone in on from the structured interviews and the extension survey. So, Stephen, I mean, when we talk about small farmers, I'm curious who we're talking about in the next phase of your report. Um, uh, well, let me ask that, and I'll ask my next one. Stephen? Yes. Um, as Paul said, uh, basically we have um, identified 10 top issues, and but this is from the uh, perspective of uh, agricultural producer groups and also uh, Maryland, uh, Universal Maryland Extension educated. But we, we would like to get hands-on what the producers themselves uh, think uh, to confirm what other groups have already told us. Uh, as you said, environmental land issue, uh, uh, right to farm, some of the programs offered by MDA or uh, uh, USDA. But uh, in, in the top of that also, what is the best mechanism to convey uh, those fundings to uh, uh, to the farmers, uh, because some of them they, they strongly believe that organizing workshops in where in the areas in the the environment, you know, the, the area where they live, would be the most effective. But at the same time, uh, things like uh, marketing issues or diversification, they believe that um, providing maybe a short video uh, on the internet or uh, some of the webinar will be the most effective way. So we need to pursue further uh, with the survey, but uh, connecting directly with, with the producers. So, so finally, Paul, before we have to break here for, for, the, for the hour, I'm, uh, and I, I'm, I'll be very curious to see what this comes out with, because I'm, I'm always very curious what will happen if, if, this, if, the, if, if what is the conflict for many farmers turns out to be in conflict with the environmental laws that we have, where that might leave us. Hmm, that's a good question. I would say that if we find out it's conflicting, then probably what we need to do as a group, as as, as our group with Stefan, myself, and the other um, legal specialists in the group, we need to better work on figuring out and working with other people at University of Maryland or other groups to figure out how we can better equip farmers to be able to handle changing environmental laws and understand how they can modify business practices to be able to match that. What we're looking forward to this, which we've been talking about, understanding the diverse legal needs of the Maryland agro agricultural community, which is the title of the report. And Paul Geringer and Dr. Stephen Tubin are two of the authors of that report. They're now going to their next segment, which is actually to talk to many of the small farmers. And um, you can go online and really see the findings of the first survey at umaglaw.org. And we'll also be linking to that on our website on Soundbites and the Mark Steiner Show as well. And Paul Geringer and Dr. Steve Tubin, thank you so much for taking your time with our listeners today. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you all for being part of this program today and joining us for these uh, last couple of hours. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media and made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Stephanie Mavronis and Mark Gunnery. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our intern is Sianna Greaves. Our theme music is by Walt Matthews of Clean Cuts. To hear this show again and podcast any of our past shows and find out about our guests and what they're doing and linking to their work, please visit us on the web at steinershow.org. You can also listen to and download our podcast on iTunes. And for Public Radio, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and WSDL 90.7 FM, Marvel Public Radio, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care. <laughs>